I'm Sonia Morton Firth, and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today, my guest is Ian Young, speaker, author, founder of Recovery Clinics and Sober Services Global in the UK and in Thailand. In his past life, a squatter, raver, DJ, and addict, injecting heroin, cocaine, as well as being an alcoholic. His life then revolved around setting up raves in the UK and dodging prison. Ian now touches the lives of thousands of people, offering lasting recovery for those struggling with addictions. Ian, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. And first of all, we should probably tell people that you haven't got a screen background of lots of lovely palm trees. Just to make it look good. <laughs> Where are you, Ian? Come on, let's... let's. Uh, yeah, no, thank you for having me on your show. I'm really delighted to be here. And it, it's great to connect with you. I apologize. I haven't even had a shave, but I did put a shirt on. Uh, I've been wearing, I, I only really wear like sleeveless t-shirts these days. Uh, I, I have shorts on, but I am barefoot, uh, as, is the, the, as is the culture when you live in beach life. Um, this is, uh, I'm in Koh Phangan, which is the third largest island in Thailand. And uh, I, I'm actually part of a new project here in Koh Phangan, uh, called Eden Life that we're just starting, me and three other guys and girls. Uh, and we were in a 31 chalet resort, uh, 60 meters from the beach. The beach is just over there. I am so jealous. And I'm sure people here, mind you, we're going through a bit of a heat wave at the moment in England. It's been, it's like 29, 30 degrees, but I'd still give anything to be there. 29, uh, 30 degrees. That's what I sleep in. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, Thailand, in, in southern Thailand, I've been living in Phuket for, for the past year as well. The, the weather is 30 to 31 to 35 degrees during the day, and at night it goes right the way down to 25, 26. That's, you just, uh, what an awful life, what an awful life. I, be, I, believe, I believe that we create the life, that, I, I chose to create this life. I, you know, I, we talk about vision boards and we talk about goals and all this stuff. And, and I've always been someone that's reached for what can I have next to make my life feel better. And, and so I don't find it a surprise to have me living in tropical paradise because for years I've always wanted to live in tropical paradise. Yeah. When um, uh, back in the 90s, I spent six months living in the Caribbean. Uh, I spent six months living in, in, in India. Uh, I spent a load, of, I spent six years living in the south of France. Um, I, I would just go and do stuff and create life. Uh, and I've, I've always been about creating my world around me so it, it works for me rather than me working for the world. Uh, and that's kind of a crass thing to say, but I, I've, I've never really worked well as a, an employee. I've always been someone that kind of creates magic for myself. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling pretty fortunate, but at the same time, I work very hard to get this lucky. Absolutely. And it wasn't always, life wasn't always that easy. Um, and I know, you know, you and I share uh, the Yes group in common. You were leader of that. And obviously I do want to talk about that as uh, that's what's yeah. brought us together. But well, in doing, you know, I knew a lot about you, Ian, and doing my research, I realized I absolutely knew nothing about you. And your story really blew me away. And for the last few days, I've been listening uh, to your audios, watching your videos on your website. And I, I just want to take you back 
before we talk about what you're doing now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say, I want to take you back to the bad boy. <laughs> um, or, or if you say you're the first part of your life. No, no, bad boy is the terminology that I use because I, I very much see uh, the shift in my consciousness around me finding sobriety and getting drug and alcohol free around the turn of the century was my shift from bad boy into good guy. So if I, then that's, how, that's the language that I use. Uh, I, was, I was speaking at a conference last weekend in Koh Samui uh, to Thai people and it was getting translated to the, into Thai. And the whole theme for me was about explaining what it means to transition from bad boy to good guy and and, and that's very accurate I, I i can give you the long version the short version or, or the, the 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 pinpointed version but i mean essentially i i i i, I i'm not a, a i didn't grow up with major trauma or anything i didn't have a, a an unfortunate childhood I, my parents were good people i was a middle class kid uh, but but i i never really felt like i had enough and i always wanted more uh, more of life, more of this, more of that, uh, more food, more excitement, more TV, more friends, more. I just always felt like I wanted more. Um, and uh, at some point or other, that came out through bullying. And I, and I was a bully at school. I, I would, you you I would, were the bully. You weren't bullied. You I, were was bullied. I, I would pick on people that I thought were vulnerable in order to gain friends because i was being the guy the, the main man and also i would be gaining energy and power from the, the victim um because uh, i would be feeling confident and getting strength and feeling power and i and i don't say this to show off i say this as a reality that the act of bullying others is a mood altering process and it was giving me a sense of strength and courage and power by being a bully and, I, and I'm not trying to encourage people to go off and experiment with being bullies. Did you, I'm not, saying, did you not feel guilty or a sense of, um, wow, is this the right thing to do? I don't think, I mean, this is when I'm a young teenager, 12, yeah. 13, 14 years old. I don't think I ever thought that, I don't think I ever had a conscience around it. I, I, I do know that, I, that other people from older years would bully me and, and therefore it was a learned behavior. Um, but but I, I, I absolutely recognize that I was bullying people in order to make myself feel better about myself. It, it was a process of mood altering behavior. And, and, and that went on until I really, um, I mean, I, I started drinking, I was quite a late starter. I, 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 the first time I got drunk, I was 10 um, and it was Halloween and I had my first beer and my first cigarette and my first kiss of a girl all on the same night, Halloween. Wow, what a night, that must have been. <laughs> yeah. I think it was 1990, uh, 1980 or 81. Uh, and, and, and I remember thinking, hey, this feels good. Drink, smoking, girl. Uh, and, but, and so it's quite- Out of those, which one, which one did you prefer? Which one sticks in your mind the most? Let's face it, your first cigarette is bloody awful. I think there's no, doubt about the correct answer to that I, i've been chasing skirt ever since uh i i, I i've always found um uh the the law or the ability to attract a woman into my life i find very endearing I, I, yeah i love that i think I, yeah as, as, a, as a young adolescent that that was what i was chasing and i believe that when i was starting to drink and, and use drugs i was always chasing chasing girls 
and that it was giving me courage to chase more girls. It was giving me the ability to wear a mask and put on this persona and be this character that felt more confident and able to chat up girls. And I think it's always been, it's always been that. It's always been, the, 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 as a professional who works in the treatment industry or the addiction treatment industry, I believe that our base addiction is love addiction and that ultimately we're chasing love. And, and I learned that love, I learned in those days that love came to me through, through girls. So that's how, I was under, that was how I was understanding what love meant. And it's not necessarily accurate or real, but that, that it's a superficial level of love. So my love addiction manifested itself through drinking and drugging in order to change the way I felt in order to attract girls. That is fascinating what you just said, and it, it, it actually completely rings true. So if I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase that, what you just said is the basis of every addiction is the, the, you seeking love. It's love, yeah, we, we're craving love. And Tony Robbins talks about that in The Six Human Needs and that love and connection are the top two. And Johan Harry talks about it in his brilliant book, Chasing the Scream, which really opened my, 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 view, my views on harm minimization and maintenance, whereas before I'd been very pro-abstinence. It really opened me up about that. But he, yeah, he talks about it. You've seen this video on Facebook where they, do, they talk about the rat experiment. And, uh, and he says the opposite of addiction is connection. Uh, and, and that's what I was chasing all through my addiction and, and, and to a large degree through my recovery. I'm still chasing connection, connection with people, connection with others, connection through girls, connection through nature, connection through life or love or the universe. Um, and and, and um, so Johan Harry says the opposite of addiction is connection. My, um, my professional diagnosis is that the, the, the one word that summarizes addiction is selfishness. And the opposite of selfishness that comes about in recovery is selflessness. And it's about contribution and generosity and kindness and, and, and spirituality. Um, and I'm, I'm, really, I'm really jumping the story here, but, but as I was getting sober and understanding what it meant to, to live in, uh, in recovery and to have recovered, um, I was encouraged to explore religious dogma and search for spirituality. Um, my, 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 my recovery has been one of a spiritual journey. It's been about discovering spirituality for myself and the the the, the, the religious leader that i uh, resonated for me was the dalai lama living in exile from his people in tibet living in northern india and funnily enough i'd gone to dharamasala when i was getting very stoned i had a big heroin habit and i went to dharamasala uh, and i queued up to see him but for some reason he didn't want to see me i ended up overdosing that night um so it, it, I, it was funny I, I, was, I was in india for six months went to the, went to the dharamasala overdosed didn't, the Dalai Lama didn't want to see me. We ran out of drugs. And so our best thinking was, well, where can we get more drugs? So and we had heroin habits at this time. And um, we understood that the, the, the best place to get drugs was Afghanistan. That's, that's where all the heroin was coming from. So we thought we would go from Dharamasala in the northern Himalayas over to Kashmir on the, on the Indian-Pakistani uh, border, where, where, which is at war. It's a war zone and it has been for decades. And uh, uh, because we figured we were closest to Afghanistan, we'd get better heroin there. Ended up in Kashmir where, you know, the electricity is going on and off. You can hear bombs going off and we're staying on these, these houseboats that would have been beautiful 20 years beforehand. But since the war had started, they just become more and more tired. Um, and it's really cold. It was like November uh, and, and at night you needed like big jackets and stuff. 
uh, and the only heroin we could get w was washing powder. We, we were sold bad heroin and uh, we were both injecting at the time and, uh, and it was just making us more and more sick. So you, you say bad heroin, is any heroin good? Of course. Of course. I mean, I, I, I've never tried myself. <laughs> I've never tried myself. What, what, okay, let's talk about this. What, what was it about heroin? Because let's let's face it, a lot of people out there have tried some form of soft drug or you know B class C class drug, whatever you call it. But obviously, heroin is is the the big bad boy that I, I guess a majority of people go oh, won't touch heroin. You know, never touch heroin. What 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 was the point where you you presumably were doing? What were you doing other drugs? I'm sure you would oh, yeah. go straight onto heroin. No 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 no. I mean, it, so I, I, after getting expelled from school for burning down the fifth form block, though they couldn't prove it. Um, did you did you do it? Did yeah, you? but they couldn't prove it. <laughs> I had contributed towards it by by starting the fire, but I, I yeah, but they couldn't prove it but anyway. Uh, I, I, I went off and, and started squatting and um, the drugs, I, yeah, I, 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 I said to you earlier, I became a hippie because hippies did more drugs than school kids. And, and, and I, at first it was a try-hard teeny goth, so I was like a, a junior goth. I'm only 15, 16 years old and I'm just, we call it try-hard teeny goth. And that, emer that evolved into hippies. And then the hippie thing, I realized that punks did more drugs than hippies. So I became a punk and there's photos of me with Mohicans yeah. from 16, 17, 18, 19. My Mohican grew out as I became crusty and uh, went into dreadlocks. But I've got some dreadlocks now. I've got, Let's right. Oh yeah, I can just about see the dread. Oh yeah, they look good. Four dreadlocks there, four. Four. That, um, yeah, four, and they all started in lockdown. <laughs> That, that, that one there began um, the, the very week of lockdown. So it's my lockdown dreads. Um, and, and I had dreadlocks back in, when I was 19 that went down to my ass. Um, and, uh, and, and ultimately, I, I'm doing lots of psychedelics and amphetamines, essentially. Acid, mushrooms, DMT, experiential psychedelics, lots of that. I had a big reputation in London as, as, as a LSD king. Uh, I was getting LSD imported to me uh, via um, the diplomat of um, an Irish person, um, a, a, an Irish member of parliament, his daughter with diplomatic immunity was carrying the LSD wow. from California, I presume, from the USA to London. Uh, and I'm sure that the money was going to fund the IRA, essentially. Um, but uh, that, that's where I was getting my LSD from. And uh, so I, I, I was producing blotters and blotters and blotters of it. And I, I absolutely fell in love with ecstasy. And anyone that tries ecstasy and doesn't fall in love with it is, must be doing it wrong, I don't know. But uh, the ecstasy's whole chi is about love. It's about love and connection and unity. And it's not necessarily, uh, it's, not a, it's not an addictive drug. I mean, you can become addicted to the buzz, but it's not an addictive drug that you can, in the same way that heroin is or, or, or other drugs. But you still get your come downs. Weren't you suffering from the come downs from all these drugs? I mean, you know, I, I know you see, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. The trick is not to come down. <laughs> I, I didn't come down until sometime in my late twenties. Uh, I was, I was a daily, I, I used every day, every day. There wasn't a day where I didn't get high. It was what I did. I used to live and I lived to use. 
and that was from the age of 16 right the way through to when I finally got sober in 2000 uh, in 2001 at age 29 there wasn't a single day when I wasn't wasn't uh, high or stoned every day um, but, but how do you even afford to you know to, to carry on the habits to fuel it well you create the lifestyle that you want in order to achieve that so I created these, these these raves and these parties i was part of the sound system culture i was my my role was selling enough lsd in order to create enough money to supply me and my crew with ease and uh, and hash and alcohol and everybody in our tribe contributed their own thing whatever that was we didn't judge you because you were making more money or less money or because you weren't making any money but you doing all the cooking or we all took care of each other we lived in communes and tribes as young people, as young adults, this is the counterculture. This is how we survived. We lived in squats during the winter in London, and in the summer we would travel in buses and we would live together and go all over the place. Um, and, and we were fully self-supporting through our own contributions, one way or another. None of us had a job, none of us had a bank account, but we had access to. Uh, we would sell drugs and we would sell other things along the way. And you put on these huge raves, right, across across the UK and Europe. Yeah, I was part of a group called Spiral Tribe, which is infamous for the early 90s. And then uh, also, uh, I'm an original Bedlam boy. Uh, and that was, Bedlam was really what we were doing in London. Bedlam was, was, was it's kind of my home because we were all like uh, North, East, North and East London squatters. Um, and uh, um, I first met the guy called Bedlam, who, who I won't say his first name, but you either know or you don't, uh, at the George Roby, 1989. Um, at an alternative gig at the uh, George Roby, probably a Friday night. And, and I was selling my acid and he was selling his acid and I was getting my acid at like 80 quid for a hundred and he was paying over two pound for, so 200 quid. And he couldn't believe that I could get them over half as, as, as cheaply. And that's how we became friends. And uh, to this day, that guy is, is a legend in, 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 in the world. And I, I'll talk about that later when we come full circle to Glastonbury, if you like. But, um, uh, I, 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 my my thing was so I was selling acid to support the the tribe and um, and and we never ran out of drugs and, and and looking back at it it was the perfect culture to support someone with addictive disease because we made sure that no one ever ran out one way or another someone's doll was coming through someone was getting money on this day one way or another the whole tribe stayed stoned the whole time. And was it ever about the music? I mean, obviously that, that was the start of Acid House, it was the start of, you know, all the... It's all about the music. And I, I have to say that not only because it's the official line, but it's actually sincere. All of us were entranced by the music. The music of that genre, that era, that genre, was groundbreaking. And, and I mean, it, it's modern day psychedelia. It, it's psychedelia from the 1960s, made relevant for the 1990s. So I I was a student at Coventry at the time, and I don't know if you remember or heard of the Eclipse. It was one of the, oh. sorry? The Eclipse parties. Yeah, yeah, it was one of the big places in, in Coventry, and I remember, you know, the, the guys in my house would always trip down there, and yeah, it was uh, fun times. Well, I mean, I'm a raver, not a clubber, and the difference between that is clubs are enclosed and they sell alcohol. Yeah. Raves were, were illegal, uh, and we, alcohol was just a small part of it most of it was about ecstasy acid and 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 the freedom to dance in a field or outside or in a space where no there was no rules it was living anarchy 
it is living in a in a in a in a uh, utopian anarchy lifestyle uh, and i'm an anarchist to this day the problem is that the media portrays anarchists as, as clad in black fighting the police and, and yes i have a history of that but that's not what anarchy is about anarchy is is, is an extreme form of liber libertarianism i am smart enough and tuned in enough to know what is right for me and how i should treat other people and there are two rules to how we treat other people do unto others as you would like done to yourself and do for others what they cannot do for themselves. And if you can apply to those two principles, you want me to repeat them? Do now, to others. I was gonna say, were you using those principles back then? I know obviously you do now. Always. It's my mantra. And in those days, yes. And as a tribe, yes. Do unto others as you'd like done to yourself, at least within the tribe. Um, we would steal off society, but within the tribe and do for others what they cannot do for themselves. It's absolutely the image that, that, uh, uh, that, that comes to us from, from those days, for sure. Um, now, then I went into a darker stage. I, I mean, I left the country in 1992 after getting arrested for this big rave called Castle Morton where 38,000 people turned up. And we knew it was on top. We knew that we they'd have a field day with that right now. We've been told we can't meet more than six people. <laughs> I know. So what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to uh, dress up in tweed and uh, carry a bugle and yes. dance around the DJ. And when the police turn up, we'll just tell them we're fox hunting. Yeah, perfect, and that's okay, right? Perfect. Killing a fox. Don't worry about it. The, the, the hypocrisy I know, I of, know. of this government to legalize gatherings of more than six if you're fox it's, hunting is just alarming. become a joke. I mean, I, I really don't think they know what they're doing. But yeah, absolutely agree with you. It's, um, yeah, but what we can get on that's a whole other topic. But, so yeah, we'll come to that later. So, so, you, so you left the UK in 1990. I left the UK. And, and if you're going to leave the UK, if you're going to go on the run, because I didn't fancy prison, uh, where are you going to start? The obvious place to start is Amsterdam because the weather's exactly the same, but you can smoke drugs on the street. So I, went, I ended up in Amsterdam. That first night, I was there with nothing. I, 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 I scraped together a, a cement sack and a bread sack and used that as a blanket, and I was cold. So I, I realized that I was cold, and so by night two, I had seven blankets. You know, I'm a survivor, and I figure out how to survive. So as I'm there building a a world around me. I ended up going to Berlin, had a great time. This was shortly after the wall had come down. I was squatting in East Berlin. And in those days, uh, if you wanted to squat in Berlin, you needed to get a license to squat. You couldn't just break into somewhere. You need to have permission. So we got a license for our squat. It was actually an old factory. You actually can get a license to squat? In those days, I don't know how it is today, but in those days you had to have a license, otherwise you'd risk getting evicted. And the police in Germany were far more hardcore than the police in, because uh, they were used to uh, the, the Russian dominance. Um, but uh, <laughs> so we, we, we were actually squatting an old factory that used to, to manufacture Gestapo uniforms. Uh, and we had painted it yellow and black check. So it was like a chessboard, yellow and black. And we had a license to put on parties Wednesday, Friday and Saturday. And that, that, that was the permission given to our, to our squat. And then down the road, there was our, our friends in Mutoid Waste who were putting on a, a festival on, on charity, which was the no man's land between Checkpoint Charlie and, uh, and the River Rhine. And it's actually where the original Reichstag sat before 
Hitler and his goons burned it down in 1936 or something. And that's how he took power, by blaming the burning of the Reichstag on the communists and therefore getting endorsed by the, uh, not the Tsar, the, 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 the Kaiser, uh, to take over parliament. And, and that's how he came to power. So the Reichstag was the original German parliament and we were putting a party on there. And um, the, uh, that was where I met people like um, 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 Sven Vat was there. And um, um, trying to remember all of their names, but loads of great German trance DJs that you'd know. This was their area, this is 1992. Um, the police came down one night and shut us down. I remember them marching down like a battalion. Uh, and they, they were in pairs, like an, a, a battalion of 12 was six pairs, and each pair had a different weapon. Yeah, some had cattle prodders, some had hammers, some had guns. It was just crazy. Um, but the crazy story from that era was, was when I chose to leave Berlin, I left with a guy, a Welsh guy called Nigel. And uh, we went and drove out. Being uh, a Welsh guy. <laughs> a nice guy. We, we went and drove out and stole a big Mercedes box truck and then drove this Mercedes box truck out east to escape Berlin. And we parked, he knew a place, he parked up in this place. And it turned out the place that he had chosen to park up was, was a Russian military base. Now the East Germans were retreating at this time, Glasnost had arrived, they were having a whole change of consciousness. So it's after the fall of the Soviet Union, but it's the early days of Russia. And so the Russian army was still there, but it was retreating. And there was piles and piles, as high as a two-story house, of different Russian army gear. So there'd be a pile the size of a house of Russian boots, a pile the size of a house of Russian hats, a pile the size of a house of Russian army shirts, whatever it was. Just in, and this went on for, I don't know, as far as you could see. And, I, and we open up the back of the truck, and inside the truck, there's like a few hundred office chairs. And we don't want to take these office chairs with us. We, we just want to paint the truck and get back over yeah. into Western Europe. We're just there to paint it. So we empty all the chairs out of this truck, pile them up there. And in, uh, 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 during a break, I start walking up and down these piles, collecting army surplus gear for myself, some shirts, some shoes, whatever. Next year's right. wardrobe, right? <laughs> You've got your whole wardrobe. My next wardrobe, absolutely. Army boots was, it, was what we wear. But then I see a battalion of Russian army walking towards me. And I'm literally stood there at the top of one of their piles with my arms full of their gear. And here is an, my first experience with the Russian army walking towards me. And I absolutely crap myself. And I stood there frozen and they walk right up to my pile and they kept walking and they walked and they're heading towards the truck. And I don't know how to turn around and tell everyone at the truck to watch out the army's coming because I'm feeling so exposed. They walked up to our truck and they took our chairs and they loaded their chairs into their own arms and they, they carried our chairs away. And it was like a silent agreement that, that they weren't gonna to touch us, but they were gonna have our chairs. Wow. It was a crazy thing. That uh, and they walked off with 200 chairs and I, we walked off with a full handfuls of army surplus gear. So, I mean, Ian, all this sounds amazing. It sounds like you had such an amazing life and, you know, people are probably listening going, wow, we need to take loads of drugs, go out there and party. 
there must have been some dark moments. Oh, I'm nowhere near the dark moments yet. The dark moments don't come for a number of years yet. I'm still oh, very okay. enjoying. We went from Berlin with the truck. We went. And we lived in Paris for a while. Then we went down and spent the, the the winter in Barcelona and Valencia, so that we weren't too cold. And then we came up to the south of France. And this is where I started experimenting with um, with coke, with cocaine. And while this was probably the first example of a dark moment, is where, where when were you in Barcelona in the south of France? What year was this? Just out of interest. 90, the winter of 93, uh, I was in Barcelona. Okay. I, no, I, was, I, I, I was in Valencia and Toulouse um, about 92. Yeah, you know. Well, I lived in Toulouse afterwards. That, that, that's next. Toulouse is where I stopped. Uh, and, and so I am, my French, I speak French fluently and, I, and my French is Toulousan. Toulousan. <laughs> Um, but so in 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 it was in Valencia um, that I went into paranoid psychosis for the first time. So I I must be 21 now, maybe 21 and a half. And what paranoid psychosis looks like is that I'm very uncomfortable in my own skin. I don't feel uh, connected to anyone. I'm super anxious about everything. I'm counter in in and. When people are saying something, I'm investigating the meaning behind the meaning behind the meaning behind why they're saying that, as if it's a whole conspiracy. It's a real scary place to be. And I was there for a number of weeks, um, getting more and more paranoid, feeling unsafe, and unable to trust the people that were with me, and just isolating myself. And at some point, when you take LSD, it's like you have an elastic band. And you, you, you take LSD and you stretch your mind and you stretch that elastic band and then you come down. And the next time you take acid, you stretch your mind and then you come down. If you keep stretching that elastic band, sooner or later, the elastic band gets a bit saggy. It loses its tautness and you keep pulling on it. And sooner or later, you have to pull it so far in order to get, get the, the tautness that then when you let go, it no longer goes back to the same shape and it starts getting very saggy. And that's the best metaphor I can use to describe paranoid psychosis and how that affects your brain. But at some point, you stretch it so far that it breaks. I mean, because everyone's talking now about psychedelics um, and hallucinogenics and how it can expand the mind. And, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of people out there taking ayahuasca. It was one thing on my hit list. I'd love to do that one day. Um, but what, where do you stand in all of that? Is, is it, uh, I mean, obviously... Now or then or... I mean, I, I'm a cosmic casualty. I, you are looking at someone that did seven hard years of constant and daily psychedelic use. Constant and daily psychedelic use. I have expanded my mind. I've been on trips that have been out of this world. I've been to other planets. I've gone to the point where you meet Gandhi and Hitler and you meet all these these peace-loving people and these, these atrocious people. I've gone on that trip. I've gone on the various death trips. I've gone on the naked trips. I've done all of the trips that, you, that your friends will ever start talking to you about. Your friends will say, oh, I went on this trip and this happened. I've done it. I've done them. The, the, so, so, yeah, all of the big trips have kind of themes behind them. And over a period of time, you, you, you'll, you'll go through all these various themes. You know, I, I've, I've been there and, and I don't have any regrets. I don't have any regrets. But I, there comes a time where I had to realize that my mind was no longer sane 
Yeah. And that it affected me. I had become paranoid, psychotic, and my mind had been stretched so far that it had snapped. And on that day, I made a decision to never take LSD again. And from the day that I made that decision never to take it again, my mind began to heal. It was, it was almost instantaneous. So since that day, in, uh, it would have been, God knows, like this early 1993, I haven't taken psychedelics since. I love and I respect them. And I'm not even trying to warn people not to take them. But I will say I cannot take them again. Yeah. I've, I've, I, I blew my mind in 1993 after seven years of daily and constant experimentation. Um, and, I, and, I, and I do love ecstasy. I absolutely do. And, and actually ecstasy was the only uh, psychedelic I, I'd taken. I said, that's true. I just never took LSD again because I, I, I certainly never stopped taking mushrooms. I love mushrooms. And I've always enjoyed DMT. If you ever get the chance to smoke DMT, DMT is like a shortcut to ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is, is a, is a, a whole is, load. I've of never acid. heard of DM, DMT. What is DMT? DMT is ayahuasca, but, but kind of uh, reformed into a, little, into a powder that you then smoke. Uh, and it gives you uh, 15 minutes of, of hallucinations that are out of this world. Um, but your mind is completely clear. You know what's going on. You're just enjoying, your eyes are closed. You're enjoying being in another planet. Um, uh, ayahuasca is like a whole 36 hour mad kind of vomiting and purging thing. Ayahuasca? Um, I have not done ayahuasca. The scene for ayahuasca kind of grew yeah. after I got sober. The woman that uh, really kind of push, pushes ayahuasca in London, her name is Rebecca Shaman. Have you come across her? It's got a great name for ayahuasca though. <laughs> Was that a deliberate? Well, Rebecca Shaman, if you look at Rebecca with a K, Shaman on Facebook, she's pretty famous around the London scene. And uh, I grew up with her. And in her first book, she references me taking psychedelics as an inspiration to her deciding to go off to South America and explore shamanism and learn what the psychedelics were that they were taking in, in I think it was Peru certainly it was the Amazonian um, and then from there she she's she's the big king on ayahuasca but me and Rebecca were hanging out um, in our early teens 13 14 15 years old uh, and whenever I run into her we have nothing but fond memories of our time together and, and funnily enough when I got sober in 2001 I ran into her when I was like 30 days sober and uh, we hadn't seen each other in a few years. She gave me a copy of her book. She said, look, I, I referenced you and everything. Uh, and uh, we, we rekindled a, a, a lost relationship and I'm ever so fond of her. Um, and I'm sure people that know you will know her. Um, and uh, it's crazy, the, 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 the serendipitous of, of life and the people that come in and out of our lives throughout the journey. Well, it is actually, it is crazy, isn't it? If you think of it that way. How, I mean, how do you think, you know, I know, you know you haven't finished um, your journey yet, but in terms of where, where you've got to right now, how do you think that's um, benefited you today? Well, this will maybe upset some of your listeners, but um, you know, I've experimented and explored and researched in my understanding of the word research, uh, lots of conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, the whole ideas about uh, the Illuminati and the dark states and all that kind of undercurrent stuff is nothing new. 
This isn't stuff that's just happened recently. We've been talking about this since the 80s. I was talking to people about this in the late 80s, and they had been clearly talking about it for decades. So it's nothing new, all that kind of stuff. But the uh, context... Let's the get... Context, I was just about to ask you what your views are on the conspiracy theories that are out there now with COVID, with the COVID pandemic. The context of the re-emergence of all of these stories, I'm not even going to call them conspiracy theories. I'm just going to refer to them as fairy tale nonsense, because I think giving them the label of conspiracy theories is, is giving it too much is giving it too much power. These aren't conspiracy theories. These are fairy tale nonsense stories. The ideas that the opponents of Donald Trump, prominent Democrats, happen to be satanic baby killers, living off the blood of young children, which is an anti-Semitic, historic anti-Semitic story. They would blame the Jews when kids were getting lost and they would say the kids were, were, were using the child's blood to, to make their bread. It's, I mean, this is historic anti-Zionism, anti-Semitic mm. stuff. It's just regurgitated uh, that uh, and put it into a modern day spin. Then they're talking about yeah, famous Hollywood celebrities who happen to all be prominent Democrats like Tom Hanks and Oprah Winfrey as people that are somehow hiding the stealing babies for satanic blood rituals. It's just nonsense. And these people that are writing this on their keyboards, on Facebook or wherever, they just need to say that out loud to their child or to their husband or wife or to their mum or their dad. And maybe they'll realise just how crazy they sound rather than just typing it. But it's absolute nonsense. Uh, and and it, it, what, what they fail to see, what, what I believe is happening is they're getting high on the fact that suddenly they've got some information that no one else has got. And that by spreading this word about this information that no one else has got, they're somehow becoming somehow important themselves and giving themselves some self-esteem is just missing the dark side of what's going on here. The people that are pushing out these stories are driven by, by fascism, by the alternative right, white supremacy, Ku Klux Klan members putting on a new shirt, um, neo-Nazis trying to grow their hair a bit longer and support Donald Trump because he hasn't come out against them. And they found a president who is not anti the far right and they've rebranded it alternative right and you know and they've got a whole media company breitbart news which is collecting advertising money each time you watch and click on it and they've got uh, radio shows and personalities that are all coming out for this and unfortunately despite the fact that this is all coming from ultimately far right sources so many of my friends in the spiritual world the personal development world the humanistic world people that historically have got a background of love and unity and harmony and caring about others have fallen into this the, the shadow of, of this QAnon nonsense and they're spreading all this stuff and it's just bonkers I'll give you a really live example that was yeah. happening to me yesterday people were talking about this is a really kind of the save the children hashtag right you might have seen that going around Save the Children is a charity that is absolutely distancing itself from all of these nonsense claims about People say 80,000 children a year are disappearing in Britain, right? 80, sorry, 80,000 children a day are disappearing. And that's a million a year. These people just aren't doing any maths. If a million kids were disappearing a year, we wouldn't have waited until now to hear about it. 
we would have heard about it a bit while, a while ago. Parents would have said something. Yeah. <laughs> it's just nonsense. So there's this whole thing about boycott Netflix. Yes, yes, I did. I did see a post on Facebook from somebody that, that I know, I think we, we know mutually. Um, and okay. I just quickly glanced at it and, you know, I have my own opinions, but I want to hear your opinions. So the funny thing about this boycott Netflix thing is that everybody who's boycotting Netflix hasn't seen the fucking film. I now, know, it's I... hilarious. And, and, and this is what gets me too, Ian. It's like, have an opinion if you're educated on it. If you've seen it, if you've watched it, then absolutely have an opinion. But it's like anyone, and this is what, you know, I, I, I see this all the time. It's like somebody says something, put it all over social media, and everyone jumps on the bandwagon. And you know, my opinion is, we're a bloody load of sheep. It's her sheep. We just agree with it because someone else has put it out. Well, we agree with it because it's controversial, and therefore we think that it's going to give us some sort of new status of being someone more profound. But the reality is that film is called Cuties, which is a translation for mignon. Now I speak French fluently. Uh, I lived in France for six years and I still speak French fluently. I have a lot of French people that I'm in contact with. It's no secret that I speak French fluently. Now mignon does literally mean cuties, but it doesn't mean cuties in the, in the way that it's been dressed up by, by, by Netflix even. It yeah. kind of means cuties as, as, as a kind of, um, uh, it's a very soft version of the word cute. Yeah. It's certainly not sexualized. This film, I watched it, and this film is, now bearing in mind, people are saying, let's ban, let's, let's uh, uh, cancel Netflix because they're promoting paedophilia. And QAnon are pushing this agenda that, that, that the left-wing liberal LGBT community are trying to tell us that now paedophilia should be added to the LGBTQ plus P, and that, 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 that traditionally lesbian and gay people now want paedophilia added as an acceptable oh sexual God. choice. Oh. Which is horseshit. Of course it is. It's absolute nonsense. That's the same kind of rhetoric that they had that was the, the original anti-gay movement was because these people are corrupting our, our yeah, sons. Of course, yeah. It goes back to, you know, AIDS was a sin. It was, you know, the whole thing was God's crest on us all. So, so the cancel Netflix thing is because people are saying that this film is promoting paedophilia and they're judging that from a 30-second clip which has got a part of the scene at the end of the film where the girls come out and they have, they have self-taught themselves a, a, a kind of sexy dance that one of them has led them to because she, the group are influenced by MTV and hip hop icons and the sexualization of their pop stars that they see on TV on the X Factor. So one of them seen these images on TV and these girls are 11 and they've tried to act older than they are. They try to behave like they're 14, 15, because that's what 11 year old girls do and they want to be like. And so they're trying to act grown up by mimicking a hip hop artist by you know, licking themselves and touching themselves. And there's a 30 second clip of that in the trailer, which may or may not have been a, a good decision. That's raining. May or may not have been a good decision by um, Netflix to include that. But this film won multiple awards in France. Wow. Well, I watched the film. All this press is doing this film brilliantly. Let's face it, good press, all bad press. People I watched the film. the film now, right? <laughs> um, so I watched it, and this film is about as far removed from being pro-paedophilia or pro-child sex 
as Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is promoting uh, obesity in children or is promoting the idea that children should behave like rats. It's the opposite. The whole film leads up to this scene where the girls have got so immersed in this world of I have to look older and, and dress in short shorts and look crop tops and show off my body because of the the media's portrayal by in, in this case they're using hip-hop artists as, as an influence hip-hop artists on, on on shows like the x factor um and so the whole point of the movie is the exact opposite of the reason why these people are jumping on the bandwagon and getting involved in another kind of nonsense fairy tale it's just bonkers it seems like our reality is all being skewed and I don't know if it's because of everyone being in lockdown and feeling a bit crazy. Uh, but yeah, the, the more and more that's out on social media is, is, is sort of getting ridiculous. You're right. It's, I, I, we've seen a, a massive growth in this sector of you know, anti-vaccine doctrine, which is another thing. I was given vaccines as a child no one I know has ever caught polio. No one I know has ever had measles or TB or any of these other things. We were all given vaccines. Get over it. Get over it. It's okay to vaccinate yourself. The, no one is going to give us vaccines that aren't thoroughly, thoroughly researched and tested. And I know this because I have personal family members that work in Oxford in those laboratories. They're not people that are just being paid by the government to come up with the first thing they can in order to beat a COVID thing. They're doing loads of diligence around this whole stuff. They are under immense pressure to bring this out as quickly as they can. They're being given lots of money to do it to come out quickly, but that doesn't mean they're going to get it wrong. It means they're going to get it right. Um, now, why on earth would me, and I haven't even finished my story yet, but someone that ingested huge amounts of toxic chemicals into my body for 20 for, for, for 13 constant years have anything to fear from a vaccine once a year even it's just nuts it's just nuts I, I um and i appreciate there are people that might be scared that their children are going to become autistic or, or something and i have no opinion or experience on that but that is a minority of people um and and th in those cases fine opt out i don't care what i do know is that it's very likely that if you want to travel around the world again you're going to need to be vaccinated against covid thailand has its borders closed since april no one can come in no one can, if i leave i can't come back um it, but look at what Thailand. i mean this is really going off track again but thailand uh in january we were wearing face masks Mandatory. You leave your house, you're in public, you wear a face mask. Mandatory. January. Yeah. February, there's a curfew. You have to be home. Uh, if you're a Thai person, you have to be home by 11. If you're a, a, a Farang, an expat, non-Thai, then the curfew was 8 p.m. Um, why, why did they differentiate? Because the, it was the tourists that were bringing the, the COVID in. It wasn't the... It, it was considered to be an imported uh, illness. Um, in March, we went into lockdown, which meant that uh, all businesses were closed. Everything, everything, apart from essential things. The only places you could go shopping would be like local grocery stores. They have lots of 7-Elevens here. Um, and uh, there were, then mid, uh, at the end of March, 
they went into, at least in Phuket, they went into localized lockdown. And what that meant was that I couldn't even leave the village I was in. It would be like if you lived in, um, uh, if you lived in Wembley, you couldn't go to Neesden or you couldn't go to Harlesden. Yeah, so just you know, up the road, basically. Localized lockdown. You couldn't leave there. Um, you were shunned if you went out on the streets. I didn't dare go onto the main roads. I only went around my little cul-de-sac. I was running around my little cul-de-sac. Uh, it was, um, uh, I had to run four times around to do a kilometre. I didn't so I was running just drive 16 you crazy. Around my block. Huh? Didn't that just drive you crazy? I mean, I've been fortunate enough to live in, in a beautiful part of London. I live in Richmond. And at least I can get out and there's beautiful walks along the river. I can go into the park. There's lots of open spaces. And obviously they say, if you're in an open space, it's, it's a lot better. And it's, I, you I, were allowed to go out for an hour, weren't you? You were told you could go out for an hour. Point, yes, at one point, yes. But I don't think anyone... You were allowed to go out. So I was doing this clandestinely. Um, but uh, and, and we're watching the UK and the UK has got a, a lockdown and it's all very quiet. And all my friends back home are coming online and getting involved with all this. And this is when I first started hearing people talking about the dark state and the Illuminati and, uh, you know, the Great Awakening. And I started falling out with my friends when they started quoting all these anti-Semitic stories dressed up and not really believing me when I'm telling them that it's being funded by the far right. And, you know, it's just this is when it started. Um, as a result of us being locked down like this, in April, they closed our borders in Thailand completely. By the end of May, we started opening up again. Now, since the end of May, we had had 58 deaths and 3,300 cases of COVID in total. You guys in the UK were getting that in a day. We had had that in, in five months. Um, since the end of May, Thailand began opening it up again. We've been able to do what we want. You might have seen me on Facebook traveling around Thailand. The borders are still closed, but essentially, uh, in most parts of Thailand, I'll still wear a mask when I'm out in public. Masks are still mandatory, especially if you go into any shop or public place. Um, and the mask wearing has been if very effective at reducing cases. Since the end of May, they've added an extra like 300 cases since we opened up again. And all of the new cases that Thailand has had are people that are returning to Thailand from abroad. So there's no domestic cases now in, in over three months. They're doing something right. And, and, and we've seen this across Southeast Asia, that the people are doing something differently. And the people here historically, are mind, their mindset is that the government is telling us to do this, let's do this. They, they haven't got this mindset of the government's telling me to do this, let's rebel. And I'm speaking to you as the biggest anarchist you know. Hey, Ian, what's happened? That's like too many years of being sober, obviously. Hey, look, I'm being an anarchist is a lifestyle choice. And what that means is I choose to live my life on my own terms in peace and harmony. I'm an anarchist in, my, in all of my affairs. Doesn't mean I dress in black and I go and fight the police. It means I create my universe and my world and I live by my two rules. Do unto others like done by to yourself and do for others what they cannot do for themselves. And if you can follow that and live in harmony, that's, that, that, that's anarchy. Uh, and if the government is suggesting, is telling us to wear masks, I wear a mask. Why? Because at least if it reassures everyone else, I'm contributing to the welfare of others. And it's not really that much of a, of a big deal to me. 
yeah, it can get uncomfortable wearing a mask for a whole day when you're on a plane. I get it. But get over it. So I'm just, I'm just going to add something there. Um, and I know we've gone off piece completely. Well, <laughs> one of your other things that you said you held very highly was connection and love. Um, and, and, and I understand what you're saying about mask wearing and keeping the, the numbers down. But what has it done to people's mental health? Um, sorry? Wearing the mask? Not no. wearing the mask, being in isolation, because I think that's certainly where we've, we've had a lot of people, certainly here in, in the UK, that have suffered from being in isolation. And I don't just mean, you know, the elderly. I mean, people that are, that are on their own, that like to talk to people, um, that, that have really suffered suicide rates, um, apparently have gone up. They haven't got any final figures on that. But there yes. is something to be said of, well, there is a health risk, but there was a mental health risk. I, I, think, I think you're accurate. And from the reports that I read and the, uh, the, the research that I see and the, the studies that have been done, there is a rise in, in poor mental health. There's certainly a rise in, in alcoholism. There's a rise in, in suicide. There, there, my, there's obviously a rise in loneliness. And two of the main key factors around uh around active drinking and drugging and, and other antisocial behaviors is boredom and loneliness when i'm bored i find things to amuse myself with i reach for food i reach for the tv i reach for masturbation whatever it is to treat my own boredom i'll go and do things that, that i wouldn't normally be doing loneliness how do i treat my loneliness very similarly i'll reach for booze i'll reach for the tv i'll reach for porn i'll reach for food it, it's the same stuff um, and, and it has led to a, a, a significant increase in, uh, in reports of, of, of challenges around mental health. Do you think, and, and let, just getting back to alcohol, because obviously you, I know you were, you're an alcoholic, a recovered alcoholic. Um, and the UK, you know, we're all a big, we're a boozy nation, let's face it. Uh, and, and figures, I think they say 30, has been about 30% on the up since lockdown. Everyone's turning to, to, to have a glass of wine or a, a beer or whatever. Um, now, now, my views, and, and yes, I've had more, I've had the odd more glass of wine than usual. Um, and, and, you know, you, you do think, oh gosh, am I getting to the point of, um, you know, becoming an alcoholic? Now, I'm alcoholic. Now, I would say that the two, and, and obviously I want your opinion on this, but I think sometimes people just have to get through a period of time. Doesn't necessarily make them an alcoholic just because they're having an extra beer or an extra wine, because as you said, they're lonely or they're bored or they're, what do you do? First of all, I mean, first of all, you use the word that England or Britain is a boozy nation. <laughs> Tell me a nation that doesn't describe itself as boozy. Yeah. Describe a race or a country that isn't using alcohol at this anywhere. I can't think of one. You can name any country. Thailand is a good example. The Thai men hit the whiskey. The Thai girls, they, they, they drink a lot. Uh, let's think of somewhere else. Everywhere, Scandinavia, big drinkers. Russia, big drinkers. Wine. Uh, France, wine. Italian, wine. We had a bad reputation in Europe, didn't we? We had a very bad rep in Europe, let's face it. We gave ourselves this reputation. Yeah. We gave ourselves this label as boozy Britain, but actually the whole world is drinking. Um, to answer your question about 
whether you're an alcoholic because you've been drinking more during, during lockdown, no, no. You're, what you've been doing is you've been, and I say you meaning generally, but generally people have reached for the bottle to treat their boredom and their loneliness. And that's okay. Once they start getting activities again, once they go back to work or they start doing stuff, they'll put the booze back down. 90% of the people that, that have increased their alcohol activity will go back to normal once they get their, their routines back in their life. So, so what are the signs of being a true addict? If there are, um, and I know this is an area you help greatly with, with your, your, sober, your sober services. If there are families that are watching this and, you know, little, you know, their son yep. or their daughter or their sister or whoever it is, they're worried about them. What are the signs that they should look out for? Well, the sign that you ask yourself, okay, is my drinking affecting my ability to have uh, an emotional relationship with that situation? Where is my drinking interfering with, with me emotionally? In, so am I putting alcohol before my wife? Am I using more cocaine and neglecting my children? Is it affecting me? Is it affecting me at a level where my relationship with booze is becoming more important than my relationship with my family? That's what we need to ask ourselves. And for most people, it will be, I'm just going to get drunk tonight. But it's when people are getting drunk every night and neglecting taking, putting their kids to bed that it's having an emotional uh, effect on the people that they love. That's, that's the kind of boundary for me. Um, where family members can see this in other... Family members intuitively know when drinking or drugging is affecting us. They might not even know that it's drink or that it's drugs, but they'll know intuitively that something is off kilter. Um, the problem is that most family members will then become too scared to confront them uh, and, and they won't want to upset them. They, they, they might have experienced anger or rage or fury from their loved one when they've confronted them before, so they don't bother confronting them anymore. They just begin living in fear of that persona ever coming out again. And, and that is exactly where the addict wants their family members. They, the addict or, or the addictive disease within me wants my family to be scared of confronting me about my addiction so that they let me get on with it. Why? We have to ask ourselves why it is that people use drugs. And, and I think you asked me this earlier and we didn't get back to it. Why do I use heroin? Why do I love heroin? So. When I came out of this psychotic episode in 1993, I was fed up with being out of control. But I found drugs that made me feel in control. And that's where my love affair with cocaine and heroin began. I found that when I used cocaine, it gave me a sense of power and, and control and energy. And I felt in, like I was the biggest person in the room. I felt like I was the most important. It gave me self-confidence. It gave me all the things I wanted about myself. And when I started using heroin, it gave me a sense of internal uh, um, acceptance and that I loved myself. And it made me feel like I was uh, okay again. It made me feel like um, everything was, that I was important to myself. It gave me self-worth. Heroin gave me tools that, 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 that allowed me to feel well. It allowed me to feel well mentally. And cocaine gave me the power to deliver that. Uh, and, and, and so when people don't understand why we use drugs, the reason why we use drugs is because we like the way that they make us feel. We like the effects produced by it. Um, people fundamentally don't understand that. 
they think that they just see the crazy part of, of us acting out in psychosis. And they think, what the hell's wrong with this person? Why can't they see this? We can't see our actions because we're too busy immersed in our feelings and how the drugs make us feel wonderful. So when I'm getting pissed and I'm, and I'm fighting someone, I feel great about the fact that I'm fighting someone. I don't feel, shit, I'm fighting someone. I feel great about the fact that I'm fighting someone because I'm feeling the, the joys of the booze. And it's the same with Coke. I feel great when I'm high on cocaine. I don't know or notice that I'm boring the ass off everyone. I don't understand or see the fact that I'm being an asshole, I'm being obnoxious, I'm being a, a dick. Because I feel so great about how the drug is fueling my system. And when I'm getting stoned, I don't mind the fact that I'm asleep for eight hours because I just feel so great inside. I, the fact that I'm wasting away for days and days and days and not doing anything whatsoever isn't of importance because I just feel good. Um, and, and that's where the cycle of addiction begins to take over. I prefer to feel good under the influence of heroin and cocaine than I prefer to not feel under the influence of not being under the influence of cocaine and heroin. And so I adopt my lifestyle so that I can consume heroin and cocaine on a daily basis. And for the next seven years, I dedicated myself to heroin and, and, and cocaine. Um, you asked me earlier, how do we afford this? Well, if I'm now going to need to use more expensive drugs, then I need to find new ways of making money. And having understood, uh, lived in Amsterdam briefly previously, I went back to Amsterdam. I made connections up there with, you know, Amsterdam is the central part, port of the drug trafficking trade in Europe. Um, and I made connections there and I began uh, shifting um, various drugs north and south from Amsterdam through France into Spain and east and west from Amsterdam across Germany, Austria uh, and into Czechoslovakia. Uh, and, and so I had this kind of network that was going east and west and north and south, importing, exporting. I became a, a, a fairly successful DJ in the 90s. Uh, my name was Degenerate. Uh, in French, that's Degenere. And, um, uh, and I would uh, use those opportunities to perform uh, and play parties to transport large amounts of narcotics. Uh, and I don't know whether people came to our parties because they wanted to hear me play or because they knew I had the best drugs, but our parties were good. We had good fun. Uh, and I learned how to support my habit. I was part of a crew in Toulouse. Uh, we were shifting kilos of Coke and kilos of heroin a week. And I always had 10 grams of each in each pocket. And I would use as much as I wanted. I had, I, we were selling in those days sufficient amounts that I could consume as much as I wanted. So I was consuming uh, you know, around three grams of heroin a day. And I, was, uh, I began cooking up cocaine and making crack and making rock. So I was smoking it. And then at a later date, I was injecting cocaine. Um, and, uh, and I was easily using between five and 10 a day, depending on who I was with. Sorry? How are you still alive? Well, I only did it for seven years. <laughs> I mean, look, um, at any point physically that you thought your body or that you were worried about your health? I mean, you know, it's, yeah. at no point did your body just go, oh, and never mind your body, what about the police? Did the police not catch up with you? Obviously. Well, here's the trick. A lot of people, they talk about, you know, they get, they get paranoid on cocaine. A lot of people talk about paranoia, particularly when they use cocaine. The trick to not getting paranoid when you're using cocaine is to use enough heroin because heroin removes the, the paranoia. But the other reality for me was that I'd always been on the run from the police. I'd been on the run since 1992. So for me, the police really were chasing me. 
So that paranoia wasn't really paranoia. It was a reality for me. I was constantly living in a state of police fear. And I was always on the move. And, and so I never really had an address. Uh, and I watched the police pick up all the other 11 people from my crew. And they never knew where I was because I was just used to not letting anyone know where I was. I was living in a state of paranoia anyway. Um, I watched everyone else get arrested, but I knew they were looking for me. Everyone knew they were looking for me. We even knew who, who had been grassing me up. And I also knew that the, the police didn't have my real name. They had my, my name as Yan, Y-A-N-N, which is French for Ian. And my, they, they thought my surname was Nerat, as in degenerate. They thought DJ Nerat was my surname. So it was Yan Nerat was on the form. So, so yeah, I knew I was kind of in the clear. But I, I, it was my birthday party in the year 2000. No, uh, maybe, no, 1999. Uh, so November 1999. And um, I, I had a party on and I had 2000 guests coming to my party. My fiance at the time was managing all the go-go dancers. My DJ manager was managing all the DJs. Everything was taken care of. And both my ex-fiance and my DJ manager are both in my life to this day. And I'm grateful that, that none of them ever let me down. Um, and, and to that point, all of the long-term girlfriends I've ever had in my life, I've always remained on, on great terms with. And, and I think I, that's, that's that is another I, question that I wanted to ask you about, which I know I don't want to take you off on another tangent, but I did want to ask <laughs> you about what place love, romantic, what yeah. place love took in your journey and how did that shift you? But I know we're going back. So I, I really want to know about physically how you actually are still alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let me come to that. So, so I had 2,000 people coming to my party. I knew the police were coming to pick me up. And so I didn't turn up to my own birthday party. That night I got smuggled into the Pyrenees. In the Pyrenees, I did my first, well, maybe not my first, I did a cold turkey detox, which meant that I sat and I shivered and I shook. And there's no physical risk of death detoxing from heroin. It's just very uncomfortable. But there's no real... There's no real risk of death. Why do we hear that heroin's a killer and, you know, people die of just one dose? And, uh... Well, that, yeah, that if you, there are ways of consuming heroin that if you don't have a big tolerance can kill you, particularly if you're injecting, uh, and particularly if you've, you've had a break for a while and your tolerance is different. Um, but the detox won't kill you. Um, detox from alcohol can kill you. Detox from alcohol is very dangerous. And then after that, I went back, I went into Spain, friend of mine got me some gigs so I played some music got enough money my cocaine dealer from Toulouse because I've been living in Toulouse for four years came down with my ex-girl with my fiance and the three of us got a boat from northern Spain back to the UK and this is where the problems really started the problems in, in France where the police were after me weren't problems they were just life challenges that go with being a drug user but coming to London now in at the end of 1999 with actually it was early 2000 no it was, it was before the, the millennium um with huge habit a huge appetite and no resources because the cold turkey detox only lasted as long as it lasted then i was straight back on it once i got back down to spain and got some money in my pocket um i'm in london at the end of the last century with a huge habit and no resources no money no one to buy from no one to sell to no one to to, to, to secure cash from no and this is where I went into my dark period and I'm 27 years old um, and I, I started doing the things that I needed to do to get what I needed to get for the next 10 pound note 
to go and buy the next rock or the next bit of heron. And that's where I compromised my values. That's where the person that I had grown up as, born on this planet from a place of spirituality, born in a, in, in a place of, 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 of a nice guy, born jolly, hashtag jolly, that's my thing. I was just always jolly. Uh, and, and I compromised all that. And I shifted into the mentality of a junkie and the archetype of a, of a junkie where you think they're going to steal from you and they're going to rob you. Personify it, so what, what were you doing? I was, I was stealing from people. I was stealing from family, friends, people that I meet on the streets, anyone who invited me into their house. Um, I couldn't be trusted. I would be shoplifting. We would do, occasionally do small jobs on commercial buildings. We were doing dodgy deals. We were doing whatever we could. I became that dark person um, for a couple of years. Uh, and, and I did things that, that I, I'm not proud of and that I, I, I don't uh, like to boast about. Uh, and uh, largely it was petty crime. There was no real harm physical to people apart from economical and maybe emotional, but I didn't do any violence, but you know, I became, and this is what brings me to the end of my addiction is I became a person that I couldn't tolerate. I, I knew that I could no longer tolerate the way I was behaving. I, I disliked myself more and more. I began to hate the way that I was seeing myself behaving towards the very people that loved me and cared about me, the way I manipulated them, the way I took advantage of it, the way I blagged money and blagged, took advantage of their love or their help or their, when people reached out to me, I just took the piss. And I hated myself for it. And that self-loathing grew and grew and grew. And the insanity of this illness, of addictive illness is that even though I hated the way I was feeling because of the way I was behaving, the only way I knew how to change the way I felt so I didn't feel so bad about the way that I was treating people was to do more drugs to change the way I felt. And in order to do more drugs, I needed to carry on doing those behaviors in order to rip people off to get money to go and do that. And that's the insanity of my addiction. I was acting against my own will in order to get what I didn't really want. So, um, so what was the turning point? What was the point at which you'd... So somewhere high on in injecting cocaine uh, in, um, in November of the year 2000, so a year after I'd got back, um, I'm, I'm in a yellow squat in West London with blood all up the walls from where I pulled my syringes out, just throwing blood all over. Um, I, 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 I tell you the first inspiration, right? We had a hacked TV box. So I had Sky channels on a TV and I used to watch 24 hour animal planet. I used to watch the crocodile hunter. Oh. And Steve God bless his soul. He's, he's Stephen Terry Irwin. Steve Irwin's brilliant. I love the crocodile hunter. But you know, he died. Least, he died. Yeah. He died before I got to meet him. He died before I got to thank him because he inspired me to choose a different life. And because of his passion for animals, his passion for caring about essentially crocodiles, but animals in general and the planet in general, and people in general. His energy and what he stood for inspired me to decide to make a change. Living in that dark squat high on cocaine, I made a decision to get 
clean and go to Australia and th- and go and meet and volunteer at the Australia Fauna and Reptile Park. That 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 was my decision. Wow. And then a whole load of things happened, um, and I ended up uh, getting evicted again. I ended up in a rehab, and I and, and I'm really fortunate um, that the rehab that I, I ended up in was a 12-step treatment center, which promoted abstinence. And although I thought abstinence was a pretty severe way of treating my mild drug addiction, I was prepared to give it a go. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like, and you'll get it straight into your inbox.